Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chaney. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. It is a joy to have you along uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic where Darren, Derek and I are recording. It is gorgeous and beautiful, and so we are excited about the conversations that we're going to continue to have around food and faith. I would say, and if you could see this on video, you would know that Derek is especially excited because we have just an extraordinary guest today, and we're very, very honored to have Adrian Miller along with us. Adrian, thank you so much for making some time to be, be with us on the podcast today. Now it's good to be with you. Thanks for blessing me with this opportunity. And I'm jealous because I'm getting ready for another snowstorm in a few hours. Ooh. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Ouch. Winter does not want to let go of Denver, Colorado. Oh, man. Oh, well, let's, as by way of introduction, uh, Adrian Miller is a food writer, James Beard Award winner, attorney, certified barbecue judge who lives in Denver, Colorado, as he just mentioned. Uh, from 99 to 2001, uh, he served as a special assistant to President Bill Clinton with his initiative for one America, the first freestanding office in the White House to address issues of racial, religious, and ethnic reconciliation. He went on to serve as a senior policy analyst for Colorado Governor Bill Ritter Jr. From 2004 to 2010, he served on the board for the Southern Foodways Alliance. He is currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches, and as such is the first African-American and the first layperson to hold that position. He is the author of Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, the President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas, and releasing tomorrow, Black Smoke, African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. So welcome. Uh, I have been using I have been using uh, Adrian's book, Soul Food, uh, for a class that I've been teaching about race and food, and it has been so uh, it's been such a rich conversation. So I'm I'm thrilled that you are here with us today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks. And so it is our tradition on the podcast because we are a food-based podcast, which means we are also a place-based podcast. We'd love to ask a little bit about your geography. However you understand that geography, the land, the people, the culture that has shaped you and brought you to the place where you are today. Yeah, so uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado, which immediately loses me all street cred on the subject of soul food and barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> but the way I win people back is my parents are from the South. My mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So this is the, those are the, you know, soul food is the food tradition I grew up yep. with. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel that same way coming from Pittsburgh that I I I we I don't get a lot of street cred when I'm talking about soul food. But um, how was it a part of your? Um, and we're gonna we're gonna get into this a little bit. But just in terms of how did that tradition from your parents? How did it show up in your childhood? How did it show up in your in your growing up years? Or where? How did that tradition continue in your life and your and as your development? Yeah, I think I want to first comment on something that, you know, I think maybe people take for granted, but, um, you know, I, I'm just indebted to my parents for so many things. But one of the things I'm most appreciative of is that they kept me tethered uh, and are immersed in black culture. So even though I was growing up in the suburbs of Denver, you know, I still went to a black church in inner city Denver. 
Um, so that black church life was very much part of my upbringing. And also, you know, we ate soul food. Um, and the reason why I say I shouldn't take that for granted, because I hear stories of people that, you know, because of wanted a desire for middle class respectability or whatever, they kind of shed these um, notions of blackness. So I'm glad that my my parents kept that as, as part of my life. So, you know, um, but my mom was a really good cook. So she made food from all kinds of cultures. So I was really lucky uh, to, to have kind of maybe a more diverse palate than some other kids may get. But uh, soul food was the, the cuisine of, of our holidays, special occasions and, and uh, you know, extended family outings. Uh, and she was a next level um, soul food cook. You know, as the expression goes, she put her foot in it. Yeah. So um, and then, you know, soul food was part of my church life. So um, we, we weren't a church that we had a lot of special occasions, but when we did, um, yeah, soul food was featured. So we would have, there was always something we called Harvest Rally. That was the weekend before uh, Thanksgiving. That's when people really showed out. And then during the summer, there was always some kind of barbecue event and a church picnic. So yeah. I just have fond memories of that. And, uh, you know, you, when you got those church sisters throwing down. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> Not have good memories, right? Right, right. Uh, and I, I appreciate that so much. Uh, you know, my, my story is similar in that um, I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and and in a, a very, very, very white neighborhood. And two things that kept me really connected with my culture were music and food. And so I, I think it's it's really important to be able to recognize those places uh, where food tethers us to our, our culture um, in the midst of that, I think, and you said it beautifully, that, that search for middle-class respectability where we might want to leave pieces of ourselves behind, uh, but you go to those, you know, those dinners and you go to the, and, and, and the fried fish and the, and the macaroni and cheese shows up and you're like, oh, well, no, no, we're, 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 we're still here. Uh, so I, I, I appreciate your, your sharing that, that part of it. When I hear you use the word soul food, there are ideas, images, and emotions that kind of, that come to mind for me um but i just kind of want to check and see how accurate they are so curious just how do you define soul food what what is soul food and how how does it inform um you know the the black culture that that you're describing yeah so like a nice coconut cake it has several layers uh so uh you know, the short version I tell people is that Af uh, soul food is just one aspect of African-American cooking. Um, and unfortunately, it's become shorthand for all African-American cooking. But I think soul food is distinct from, say, the Creole cooking of Mississippi um, or Mississippi and Louisiana and parts of Alabama. Um, I, I would say that the low country cooking of the Carolinas is different um, and southern food is different. So um, soul food is really a blending of three places, West Africa, Western Europe and the Americas. And it all comes together in the American South. Um, but the, the kind of insight from my work is really soul food is about the food that black Southerners took outside of the South and transplanted in other parts of the country. Uh, so it's really a migrant cuisine because if you study other migrant cuisines, soul food is a condensation of the food available in the South because you get to the new place and you often can't get the exact same stuff 
that was in the quote unquote old country. And in this case, it would be the American South. And so you, you narrow what's available, you find substitutes, and then all of a sudden you're around these new group of people, right? And you start looking at what they're doing and bring that all together. So, um, that that's my kind of full answer of what soul food is probably a lot more, a more, more of a mouthful than you expected, but, um, yeah. No, I think that's beautiful. And I would not have anticipated that definition. That notion of migrant food is really, really interesting to me. And so to help our listeners connect to maybe an experience they've had of had of soul food that maybe they didn't know, are there some examples, some things that are kind of popular or easily accessible that people might have stumbled onto without maybe knowing it was soul food? Sure. Um, and I think what's going to be interesting is I'm going to go through a representative meal, which is how I organized my first book. And I think a lot of people are going to say, well, that sounds like Southern food or it sounds like what I was eating. But um, entrees, I would say, would be uh, fried chicken, maybe smothered chicken, uh, some kind of fried fish. I didn't include this in my book, but I think smothered pork chops uh, would be in there. Uh, chitlins, uh, which is short for chitterlings, which are pig intestines, not for everybody. Um, <laughs> side dishes would be greens. And in soul food culture, I'd say the most popular are collards, kale, mustard, turnip, and cabbage. Uh, so, you know, if your listeners have uh, been exposed to kale in the last five to 10 years, I'd just say welcome to the party. We've been mm. eating it for about 300. <laughs> um, black eyed peas, which are actually a bean but um, field peas are native to West Africa. Um, and then you've got candied sweet potatoes, often called candy jams, which are not the same as tropical yams. Uh, macaroni and cheese was something that was in, uh, infused into the culture, was not really a natural part of, of soul food. Uh, and then cornbread, um, hot sauce, and then I would say red drinks. And you have to understand in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. So black people don't get caught up in calling things cherry or strawberry or that it has hints of cranberry. It's just red. Um, there is a generational shift happening. There's a lot of youngins that seem to like purple and blue. <laughs> and so as I wrote in my book, I do believe the children are our future, that we should teach them well and let them lead the way, but not on Kool-Aid because they're messing it up. <laughs> and then for dessert, uh, you know, pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, sweet potato pie. So those those to me are, are, are soul food dishes. Um, and so part of the fun is as I wrote this book and started going around the country, people would argue me, argue with me. Yeah. Why didn't you include this or that? And, uh, you know, okra was one of the most popular things that people would bring up. And I'd say, well, look, you know, once you get outside the South, you don't see okra that much in soul food places. And so that's why I argue that soul food is kind of something different. Yeah. We're, we're in in this in the climate where Derek and I are are at. We're right on the very very edge of okra even being able to be produced. And so yeah, to get it, you've got to get it shipped in unless you're a really good gardener, which I certainly am not quite that good. Um, and so yeah, so there are things that yeah you that don't transfer well. And if it's a migratory food and you can't migrate those those ingredients, then it's simply not going to work as well. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, the thing I want to add about the migrant food, what what really underscores that point is if you look at other immigrant groups in the United States, what we think of as their food, if you take a closer look at it, it's typically is the celebration food of the old country. And it's the same story. You get to the new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can do it with the exact same stuff you do, often you can't. And then you're also broke. Right. But then once you get settled and start to prosper you remember the good times food of the old country and so what often happens is that people start incorporating that into their diet more frequently so stuff that was meant to be eaten every once in a while becomes a more regular part of the diet and that's the story with soul food the things that i listed fried chicken fried fish you know that was special occasion food 
um, that wasn't day in and day out food. Very cool. And that that kind of touches, and you touch on this in the book, and in sort of those some of these conversations that we we have about how healthy is soul food and like when you think about celebratory foods celebratory it means once in a while celebratory means on occasion it doesn't mean every night and um i I think there's i think there's that aspect of it but there's also you know there's also pieces about processed foods and sugar and so i wanted to just very quickly touch on that piece of of the reputation of soul food as as less healthy yeah, so there's really two steady uh, drumbeats of criticism against soul food, and the unhealthiness of it is one for sure. The other one is that this is slave food, not worthy of celebration. Mm-hmm. So to speak to the unhealthy part, I, I just tell people, well, look, this food was not meant to be eaten every day. And so I, I explain what I just uh, shared with you, and I just said, we're eating this food out of context. <laughs> Because uh, this food was eaten um, either just on weekends when the work schedule slowed and enslaved people had enough time to make this stuff because it's very labor intensive. Not so much now because of the miracle of our agricultural uh, system and our food system. A lot of stuff that was very labor intensive is convenience food now. But back in the day, if you wanted to have fried chicken, man, you had to chase that chicken, kill it, pluck it, butcher it, flour it, cook it, you know, all that stuff. And you don't have to do all that now. Um, somebody does it for you. Um, so, uh, you know, but then, so I go, I tell people we're eating out of context, but then I add also just think of what nutritionists are telling us to eat more dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, more fish. Uh, okra is a superfood. Hibiscus, which is native to West Africa is also a superfood. Okra is, um, for those who don't know, okra is also native to West Africa. All of these things are part of the soul food repertoire. So it's a matter of preparation. Um, I, I often stress. And so, you know, um, eat the glorious stuff, but just don't do it all the time. <laughs> so what was um, what was the church's role in in sort of the uh, the, the popularization of, of soul food and sort of the the and, and even as we talk about the great migration, uh, the dissemination of soul food in the black community, what, where was, where was the church in all of this? So the church was very key in the, in the formation and, and the spread of soul food, because, uh, what people have to understand is that the, the black church is one of the first independent African-American controlled institutions in this country. And, um, in the rural South, the church was not only a spiritual center, but also a social center because of the geographic isolation. So um, during slavery, enslaved people um, had uh, church basically in very controlled circumstances. Like typically the preaching could only reinforce slavery, right? So they, they picked out the parts of the Bible that reinforced late slavery. Um, and then after that, there was some kind of meal. Some It could be barbecue, it could be anything. And so um, even people who weren't down with church would go to church because they wanted to get the good eats associated with church. And so that was the church on the plantation. But then there was also this camp meeting thing, which happened in the summers. These were multi-day affairs. Um, and, I, and I write in my book about barbecue, about how this was very uh, transformative for ens- enslaved people because it it showed another possibility, a possibility where they could be freer to express themselves in worship and have all of these these good eats. So all of that gets gains momentum during slavery. And then after emancipation, it becomes a part important part of church life. And then what was crucial is that um, during the Great Migration, African-Americans were showing up in these cities in, in large numbers 
And sometimes there were pre-existing black communities in those cities uh, because there was there were black people outside the South, right? Mm-hmm. There was slavery in the North. And um, what was a little surprising to me is that these um, pre-established black communities were not welcoming all the time of these South- Southern migrants. Uh, so there was there was poor housing um, and a, a lot of the, like the tenement situations in the big cities. Um, you you would have housing that didn't even have a kitchen. So in addition to your monthly rent, you actually had to pay for kitchen privileges to use the kitchen. And so what what emerges is you have a lot of people uh, who are broke, hungry, and so they're relying on street food, and eventually they're relying on the church. So the church becomes a very important, again, spiritual center and social center and source of nourishment (laughs) spiritually and physically Mm -hmm. um, for these migrants. So it plays a very important role. And um, in the 1920s, during this early period of the the Great Migration, because remember, the Great Migration spans several decades. It really doesn't end until the 1970s in a technical sense. Um, You you have these... um, charismatic religious figures who emerge and they amass millions of followers because they either provide food cheap or for free. Mm. So two, two figures that I, I think of are father divine who, you know, he was a, a cult figure because he actually was telling people he was God incarnate and people believe him. That's something, <laughs> yeah, you know, he just declares it. And it's just like, oh, anyway. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you've got another guy named uh, Bishop daddy grace who um, also uh, creates a uh, denomination called the United House of Prayer for All People. And that denomination exists to this day, although Daddy Grace has long been dead. And, um, you know, they have a almost, I shouldn't say almost every, but a lot of their churches have a setup where they have a cafeteria affiliated with the church. And it may be even run out of the church basement where they're serving food to people. And again, it's next level food. Yeah. Some of the best soul food experiences I've had have been at United House of Prayer for All People Church, church restaurants. That's cool. Hmm. I think just, you know, one of the things that this conversation highlights and and as I've used your book um, is that we don't know a lot about the Great Migration, just sort of as a country. It's just it's just not a period of history that we know a lot about. I think there's there's a lot and there's a lot of of black history that is completely erased when we come to talk about the Great Migration. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your touching on that period so heavily because I, I just feel like it's a it's a it's a piece of history we we just don't know very well. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, I agree with you. And just to underscore your point, I want to say the New York Times has actually acknowledged that Mm. um, and a kind of an apology for the lack of black coverage. I think it was the New York Times. It was some major media outlet. And they and they I remember watching the interview of the editor talking about it and the editor named the Great Migration just said we missed a lot of that story. Mm. So I want to I want to take a step backwards. Um, you were working in politics and law at a very high level, like you were in in some important places. How did food capture your attention in such a way that you you pivoted from, you know, White House offices and and things like that to, to being uh, a, a major food writer? Uh, the short answer is unemployment. <laughs> The longer answer, Uh, you know, when you come to the end of administration, as I was the end of Clinton's administration, what you do as a political appointee is you write out your letter of resignation and present it 
to the incoming administration and they can accept it or not. And shockingly, George W. Bush accepted mine. So I was out of a job. Now, at that point in my life, my ambition was to be one of the senators from Colorado. So I was trying to get back to Denver just to, you know, get reintegrated in my hometown and um, community and then start working, building towards my political career. But the job market was really slow. Uh, so I was just watching a lot of daytime television. Um, and I'm not even gonna tell you what shows. And, uh, <laughs> in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I'm just, I'd always like to cook. So I was just browsing the food section and I see this book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History by John Edgerton. And early in that book, he wrote the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. The book was about 14 years old by the time I picked it up. And um, I tracked him down on the Internet. And I, I just asked him, you know, you wrote this 14 years ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, yeah, for the most part, nobody's taking on the full story and there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's really what started the journey. Wow. Whew. That's that's, that's fascinating here because I, I I hear a parallel um, sort of a parallel track in terms of the way that we have tracked um, black farming that we have not fully wrapped our our arms around the way that um, the reason the reason black people were brought is because of their excellence in agriculture that you wouldn't bring bad farmers to come to come farm your land and so we have not sufficiently told that story either and it would certainly make sense that if we're good farmers there is a there 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 will be a portion of us who also explore um, explore food coming out of that. And so to put so that that narrative of we have we have undertold the story. And as as, as a white kid from rural America, I did not hear these stories. This is this is all retroactive education for me. And so to hear to, to hear that in two completely different places makes all the sense in the world to me. We simply have not told the story fully and completely of black contributions to agriculture and to food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a shame that that story has been has not been told well. Um, but I think uh, there's seedlings of hope. I think the story is starting to be told, uh, especially with the legislation uh, dealing with black farmers. I think that's initiating a conversation. And there's some next level books coming out um, about black farming. So um, I think, you know, my, my hope is that it's not too late to save these black farmers. Um because they have been messed over for a long time. Um, so I hope we can we can save that. And the, the other thing that's really interesting is the advent of um, urban farming. So you're finding, for food justice reasons, you're finding a lot of African-Americans trying to take control of their own kind of um, food by growing it in urban settings. And I think that's exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a lot of a lot of the conversations that we have on the show are with folks who are doing that kind of work, and um, and it's ex- it's exciting, it's exciting, and and uh, I think that's that's where a lot of these conversations are headed. So I wanted to shift. Uh, I want to shift. Uh, we're 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 time traveling a little bit here today. Um, so so now you're working with the uh, Colorado. Council of Churches, um, and I'm interested in where your love of food intersects with this work that you're doing with the church, or or has it intersected with this work that you're doing with the church? It has, um, and I have to admit, the first couple of years of the job, I tried to keep it separate because I didn't want people thinking that I was trying to aggrandize 
uh, my food work through the council of churches. But um, so many people were like, what are you doing, man? That's such an interesting part of you. You should integrate this stuff. And I'm like, all right. Um, <laughs> so I, I've always been uh, deeply troubled by the body of Christ being broken by race. And, um, you know, the famous quote by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about Sunday morning at 11 o'clock being the most segregated hour um, in America. And I've been grappling with this because I am part of the African and Methodist Episcopal Church um, tradition, faith tradition. And so my church was born out of racism. If you if you know the history of my church, it's because there, there was a segregated worship and blacks could, whether free or enslaved, could not go to the altar at the same time as whites and couldn't do, you know, had to sit in segregated seizing. And they said, forget this, go kick rocks. And then just went down and started an, another church. So, um, but I, I've been feeling guilty about that in this sense. Um, you know, I'm talking about reconciliation and all that kind of stuff, but I love the black faith tradition. So, you know, do I have a problem with race because I don't want to be in a white church because I think I would be bored out of my mind, at least in the worship style. <laughs> uh, so I've been thinking about that. Um, so, but here's how food comes into play to answer your question. So um, I thought, well, given that we have a shared faith tradition, maybe food can be a way to bring people together. So um, I was planning a big interracial church potluck and it just so happened, I'd already been planning and it just so happened the horrendous murders at the church Mother Bethel in Charleston Mm. happened because I was worried. I was like, I don't know if people are going to come to this because all of my previous work on race uh, with churches was problematic. And I'll, I'll tell you this, I, we do a monthly newsletter and um, I have to tell you every time that I do something explicitly racial in terms of racial, racial justice in that newsletter, people unsubscribe. Jeez. Um, and I was shocked for two reasons. I was like, wow, people read my newsletters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a shock. All of us have <laughs> You work in church. <laughs> and then the second one, I was like, okay, we're Christians and we can't handle racial justice. We don't even want to hear that. So, um, so I had this, so, um, the, the murders at the uh, church in, um, in Charleston, I think created momentum for this event. So we had 200 people show up. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm skipping one critical part. So, um, I thought, okay, maybe if I can just do some pre-work and have a group of black pastors agree to work with a group of white pastors, get their churches together. And then at the event, I can announce we've got 20 churches that are going to do racial reconciliation for the next, you know, foreseeable future. And, um, black pastors right off. They're like, look, man, these white churches don't want to do the work of racial reconciliation. We've seen this movie before. They just want us to come preach on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and check off a box and feel really good about themselves. And I was like, no, I think we're, I think we're in a different place because of the murders of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. Now what happened in Charleston? I was like, I I think there's a opening here. And they said, all right, man. Well, we'll see. Um, So we did get some white churches signed up. So 20, 200 people show up. I, and I, the only, um, you know, restrictions we placed were sit down with somebody you don't know, just talk and then see what your churches might do together. And we offered some suggestions of, of activities they could do post this event. Um, and uh, sure enough, like three weeks later, I just checked in with some of the white pastors and I just asked how it's going. And they said, oh, you know, we've done some stuff with these black churches, but my congregants are asking us why we keep doing this stuff. <laughs> Which just reinforced what the black pastors were saying. Yeah. 
Um, so I look, I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Um, in our society, we have fewer and fewer spaces to come together. And one of those spaces is church. Um, and the other is the table. And so, um, I, I've been thinking about how to do uh, different events and maybe continue this work. But the really hard problem is, is um, it's not so hard to create a welcome table for people. It's just how do you get that person who really needs to hear some stuff to come to that table? Yeah. I, I haven't squared that circle. Yeah. It's comforting to hear you say that because this whole podcast and, you know, and so many of the conversation we get to be a part of are, are, are precisely around that, like trying to figure out how we get into these spaces and get the people there who need to hear these conversations. And so, um, so that, that, that struggle feels honest and authentic to me. Um, and it's, it, it's just really helpful to hear that in terms of encouragement that, yeah, this this work is tremendously hard. And these two things are always going to run on parallel tracks that I mean, there's always going to be these conversations of race every time we have conversations around food. Um, and so. So, yeah, I'm I'm encouraged. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I tell people, you know, this is what the early church was. I mean, Christianity spread with people having dinners. Right. Inviting some people over, sharing the gospel and it gains momentum from from there. So I I hope that, you know, the dinner table may be uh, another way to do that. Um, But, man, we're just in a tough time because there's just there's people, all kinds of people. I'm not saying one type of people. There are all kinds of people that are just very convinced of their worldview and they're very self-righteous about it. And they don't want to hear anything that might disturb that worldview. Yeah. Now, are there places in your work with the Colorado Councils of Churches that you can point to and say, actually, we've seen some momentum with that? Um, Because churches working together and particularly in the kind of geographic area that you're talking about, um, you know, even in my local context, you know, us and the church that's 100 yards from us sometimes struggle to do things together. And so in that in that much larger context that you're speaking of, are there places that you can look back and say, you know what, we actually we actually maybe didn't move the ball forward, but there were conversations that 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 were productive that that led to some kind of action that was meaningful. Uh, so in, in terms of racial justice, I have to, I have to say that that's not really happened until now. Okay. So the the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many other people, because remember, people are still getting killed. Um, I thought we were going to be in this moment five years ago after the Mother Bethel murders. Um, I thought that, that the fact that that happened in a church, um, I thought would create an eye-opening moment, and it really didn't happen. And I'm not sure why. So, um, but what I can say about the moment we're in now is I, I have seen more white people with their eyes opened mm-hmm. and a willingness to at least investigate and explore um, anti-racism, um, their own racism, um, you know, systemic racism, all of that. Because normally what happens is that usually there's something horrible. We pay attention to it for a couple of months and then the energy dissipates. Sure. I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing more churches having ongoing dialogue. Um, and I just have never seen that before. So um, I, w- I would say that that's, it's now that that's happening hmm. uh, in terms of racial justice. There's, um, in, in, in instances where race may be a secondary thing, for example, like lack of access to housing, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, criminal justice reform. Um, I'm seeing energy around that in immigration reform as well. 
Um, so yeah, so the answer is I, I am I am hopeful because there seems to be more of an appetite for ongoing work with those things. Mm-hmm. So the and, and to your point, the the course that I developed that I use your book for, um, it was with a church that had already done a. Um, already done a series on critical race theory and the 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 question was what's next and and part of why i think uh bringing food into the conversation one i think food can is is incredibly unifying we all have to eat that's a that's an experience that we all have that unites us um but two food and, and we talk about this on the show all the time every justice issue that we care about has a food component to it somewhere some part or or another and so um i noticed as uh, particularly as i was leading um this last round of doing doing the course that there were some some eye-opening experiences of the ways that our food system have exploited black and brown bodies in the past historically and being able to draw direct lines to what's happening now. And that for me has been the power of food to be a container for these conversations. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've given some thought in, into uh, other ways that food can be, can be the, the vehicle through which these hard conversations happen. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I've been thinking about is um, a dining guide to difficult conversations. So thinking about a four-part dinner series that doesn't have to just necessarily be race, but giving people structure. Because what I've uh, experienced is I I think there's a lot of earnest people that want to do something. They just don't know how. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're looking for tools um, to suggest that. Um, and so just to give you the rough outline, the first dinner would be a potluck where, you know, and I'm thinking this is like six to eight people, um, although it could be done on a larger scale, but I think you'd have to have like break it down to smaller groups. But, um, you know, the, the people all get together and then it's the idea like my church potluck where you just sit down, you talk things out and then you see what you might want to do going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whoever convenes that group would say, well, this is why I brought you all together. They would probably do it at the end of the meal. This is why I brought you together. We want to deal with this thing. Um, I, I brought you together for a reason because I think you'd be very productive to helping this conversation. But if you don't want to, thanks for coming tonight. I hope you built some relationship, got to know somebody. But if you want to keep doing this work, this is what's coming. The next meeting would be the, for lack of a better word, the marginalized group, the ones affected by the challenge, expressing what the challenge is and how they relate to that. The next uh, event would be a clapback. So everybody who's outside that marginalized group saying, this is what we heard, this is how we're processing that. And then the fourth event would be a coming together to take stock of where they are in the journey. And then to just to frankly say, okay, this is what we think we can do right now. Um, what can we do in the future? And then an invitation to keep doing this work. Uh, because my experience in, in racial work uh, rec- racial reconciliation work is that um, if you if you ask somebody to come to an open-ended thing, eh, not a lot of people are going to come to that. And if they do come, they may come to like two or three meetings and then they're out. Right. But if you offer a very discreet thing, um, they're more likely to say, okay, I'm just going to give up 
Uh, I'm putting it in the most negative sense. Uh, I, I just got to give up four hours for the next couple months so I can do right. that. Right. I, I, I love that idea. I love the idea of being able to form a community of people around hard conversations for even for just that four weeks. I think, I think that's, that's brilliant. So if, if that's, if that's something that you develop, please come back and, then, yes. and, 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 and let us know so that we can, we can get that out to people so that they can, they can start using it. Cause I, I actually think it's a, I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, yeah. Thanks. I'm, I'm close on it. I just got to figure out the food piece for each of those meetings. And mm-hmm. I think I have something, but I, I just got to think that through. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to I want to uh, jump forward and talk about your new book, uh, Black Smoke: African Americans in the United States of Barbecue. Um, and as we all know, um, barbecue is a non-controversial topic. So, um, <laughs> what, uh, what what was the impetus of, of writing this book? And uh, yeah, where where what inspired you to um, to to dive into barbecue specifically? Yeah, so um, Black Smoke is a part celebration and part restoration. So it's a celebration of African-American barbecue culture, and it's a restoration of African-Americans to the the barbecue narrative in the United States because, shockingly, African-Americans are being vanished from that storytelling. So this book was born from a a place of pain, and and let me be more detailed. So uh, roughly 2004, I'm watching the Food Network, and there was a ad for something called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. So um, I was like, okay, I'll check this out. And so it was an hour long special. Cause I, at this point I was, I knew I was going to write a book on soul food and um, I wanted to learn more about barbecue because so many soul food joints have a barbecue option on the menu. And then so many black run barbecue joints have soul food sides. So I figured, let me learn more about barbecue culture. Um, so, you know, I watched this show, it's hour long show. And then when the credits are rolling, my mouth is agape. And the reason why is because not one black person had been spoken to on air oh, geez. during this show. So my first reaction was, you know, how does this happen? Right. And then the second reaction is, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue. And I- <laughs> <laughs> Episode so- title, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, this was before all the stuff about Polydine came out. So, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, Polly. I actually don't blame her that much because I've I've been the quote unquote talent in some of these. TV mm-hmm. shows. And it's really the production company. It's the production company that scouts out. They map out what the storytelling is going to be and they pick the places. So I'm sure that Paula Dean was just plugged into it because she's the star power and so all that kind of stuff. Right. And then secondly is the Food Network because they get the content and you would think somebody at the network would say, wow, there's no black people, isn't this in the South? Yeah. And so um, my book is really a critique of media. It's It's been really the media's failing and essentially telling the story of barbecue and just um, putting white person after white person as the, uh, mainly white dudes, um, as the barbecue experts. And so I just think that's whack and um, I just wanted to, you know, change that narrative. So I'm curious if there's a story just to just to give our listeners a little bit of an, ins- you know, a little taste of what the book is going to be about, um, whether it's around, you know, sort of what where, where the or the black origins of barbecue come from or a, a particular development that was that was really unique, something that kind of exploded that came out of out of a black or a soul food tradition. I'm I'm just curious if there's something in there that just like would really pique our listeners interest to to read this. 
Yeah. So um, the way the book is structured is uh, I kind of intro kind of this, what I just told you, I tell the Paula Dean story and, you know, why I think this is important. And then the next chapter is really what um, surprised me because um, I just thought African-Americans had, you know, invented barbecue mm-hmm. was to talk about the Native American origins of barbecue mm-hmm. and how that culinary heritage gets passed on to African-Americans later. So the first barbecue cooks are really um, Native Americans. And then eventually European grilling methods get grafted onto what they were doing. And then the adept seasoning skills and just honed experience of African-Americans leads to what we understand as barbecue today. Um, And I I, I talk about the possible African origins of barbecue. And then I have a whole chapter on church barbecue. And uh, because, again, going to back to the, the idea that the church was really the first black community and barbecue is very helpful in big building community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about how basically slave barbecue is connected to slavery and blackness. Um, by 1830s, there are newspaper articles talking about what a proper barbecue is. And the, and the news and the description in the newspaper says you must have a Negro man or colored man do this. Wow. Jeez. So we're, we're quote unquote part of the recipe. By the time, wow! So that's how wedded the two are together, and so um, this creates the um, you know the perception that the very best barbecue was made by African Americans. African Americans become barbecue's most effective ambassadors. Um, but then, at the turn of the 20th century, we see a shift from barbecue being done one way, and you have to understand, no matter where barbecue was done. It was all done the same way, which is really interesting given the all the regional styles that we have today. But it was um, in the open air, dig a trench, and that trench could be however long, fill it up with uh, hardwood burning coals, and you butcher whole animals, which could be pigs, sheep, or cows. If you did cows, because they're so big, you would quarter them. Um, and then uh, stick, butterfly them and stick poles in the side and then flip them and sauce them periodically with vinegar and red pepper. Now, this was all very labor intensive. And so the racial norms of the time was if you have a lot of hard work to be done and you don't want to pay anybody to do it, make black people do it. Right. And so that's why African-Americans get connected to barbecue, because it was it was the scalable party food for huge events. And so in the 1820s and 30s, man, you're getting reports of barbecues for 20,000, 30,000 people. Wow. Yeah. So. It's barbecue is a very rural thing, whole animal cooking. But then at the turn of the 20th century, it, it goes undergoes a transformation as it moves to our urban context. So that's where you start to see the emphasis on lesser cuts of meat, uh, artificial pits, all this other stuff. And because of that change in what barbecue is, you start to see more white dudes doing barbecue. But before it was really dominated by African-Americans. But by the time you get to the 1890s, 1900s, you start to see more white guys doing it. And that change to the urban barbecue and focusing on cuts of meat it leads to an explosion of regional styles that we uh, know today. And then coincidentally, at the turn of the 21st century, we get another redefinition of barbecue away from African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see, it, it's interesting. You, if you look at, if you just reframe it, you see that the cycle happens over and over, but just in different ways. So Native Americans were vanished first. Now we're finding African-Americans being vanished. 
and it's you know and i i watch a ton of food shows and it's really interesting you know with, like with the they did a whole six episodes of chef's table on barbecue and mostly white people and then you have like people like sean brock who are going all over the no no shade against sean brock, sean brock. Uh, but he but you know he kind of has become the, the the face of southern cooking and it's like you there's something wrong there um and, and i it just i think they're what your books what your books have done and we didn't even talk about the one about presidents yet um uh, uh about it has reclaimed the fact that you know one of the things that i i i did in the class was i said i asked people the question how how does the phrase african-american cuisine change your perception of your thinking about african-american food Mm -hmm. and like all of a sudden there there's this like oh yeah well that sounds like something that takes a lot of skill and something that takes you know a lot of a lot of work and training and i'm like okay now let's connect the dots here Well, no, so that's that's interesting because if you notice, the words craft are now associated more to barbecue. Yeah. And that's really connected to whiteness because, you know, African-Americans were doing this for a long time, but it was never really considered a craft. Now, although some people kind of talked about it that way and acknowledged that it was a specialized skill, but it was not anywhere monetarily valued as it is today. Uh, and so the, the other imperative for writing this book is, man, people are making a ton of money on barbecue now. Yeah. Um, and I don't want African-Americans to miss out on that prosperity. Um, so, yeah, just like you talk about cuisine. Yeah. And now now people are like, oh, you know, you have to have skill you know, um, in order to make this barbecue. You just kind of dropped this idea that at the beginning of the 21st century that African-Americans are being erased. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Like, what does that look like? How how has that happened? Yeah. So um, it really starts kicking in in the 1990s, although I think the seeds of it are in the 1980s. But uh, my argument is it's it's because of the rise of something we call foodies. So there have always been people interested in food um, and there's been media to cater to their taste. But um, for the most part, you've got a separation. You've got a lot of working class magazines, Better Homes and Gardens, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you've had these upper echelon magazines like Gourmet, Bon Appetit, and they were really catering to the wealthy who had enough disposable income to just, um, you know, travel around and have the great best food. So foodies are this hybrid group because they're middle class, but they've got disposable income. They want to travel, but they're more adventuresome than their parents' generation. So they're looking for good stuff that's different. And so barbecue emerges in the 1990s as this cool thing. And so foodies are asking two questions. What's barbecue and where do I get the good stuff? And so there's a commensurate explosion in food media to cater to the tastes of this emerging group. And um, unfortunately, they are not diverse and um, unfortunately, they don't value diversity, right? Because you can be a white person who values diversity and make things happen. But typically, you have white people talking to other white people in terms of story ideas. Who do we highlight? Blah, blah, blah. And so at the very time that this new group of people very interested in bar- barbecue emerges, they are presented with white dude after white dude after white dude as barbecue experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I, if I, I actually I should show you, but I, in my presentations and in my book, I have this one um, 
uh, Bon Appetit magazine article from J- July 2003. And in that article, it said, who's who in barbecue? And so the cartoon, the illustration, it's a cartoon, is they paint this backyard barbecue scene where people are playing badminton and croquet and all this kind of stuff. There's not one African-American in the whole scene. And there's like 20 chefs profiled. Fast forward to 2015, Fox News says, these are the 15 most important people in barbecue, all white. So it's really just a matter of who's, who decides what you pull. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, they just don't value diversity. And even even things that were good on diversity, for instance, I'm a big fan of Chopped on the mm-hmm. Food Network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do diversity so well, you don't even have to think about it. But when they do the barbecue season, no black people. <laughs> and I'm fascinated by Bobby Flay, but trotting out Bobby Flay as the barbecue guy, you know, it's par excellence. Again, maybe that needs to be edited out. But for the purposes of this conversation, yeah, like we like the standard on the Food Network for barbecuing is a white dude. Right. So in my book, I get into that. So I say, like, um, basically, food media has fallen deeply in love with white dudes who barbecue. And they're telling black people who barbecue, we're just not that into you. Um, and so there's four types of guys that emerge that I call archetypes, barbecue archetypes that are white dudes. So you've got the Bubba type, right? Um, the working class rural guy who basically is one of the most represented people in media. I mean, Bubba's have so many different kinds of shows because the Duck Dynasty, Dukes of Hazard, you know, uh, whatever show, right? I hate to say it. These are my people and they're all over the place. <laughs> there's, there's plenty, there are plenty of black people. They are rural America and they never get a show. No. Right. Anyway. Um, and then you've got the competition guy. Uh, then you've got the hipster, right? The guy with the interesting facial hair, glasses. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the last guy is that fine dining chef. And so fine dining chefs are in barbecue much more than they ever were. I mean, 1980s, you never heard of a, a chef associating himself with barbecue because that was working class people's food. Now they would grill, right? There are plenty of chefs that had charred elements and grilling and da da da, but that was not their bread and butter. Um, That's not the case now. I mean, most fine dining chefs feel like they have to know how to barbecue and feel like they know how to have a, they have to have a signature type of fried chicken. Um, So, you know, those, those are the archetypes that emerge. And so everybody that's presented as an expert for the most part fills one of those categories. And, um, you know, there are plenty of African-Americans who could fill that category, too, but they just never get chosen. Yeah. So we asked this uh, to end all of our interviews. And with all of the things that we've been talking about uh, in terms of uh, representation and racial reconciliation and and media and all those sorts of things and in with all that as a backdrop what gives you hope like what gives you not a not a flimsy uh pie in the sky kind of hope but like a resilient hope what gives you real hope so you know the we're already seeing seedlings of change so um in the year that i basically turned in this manuscript um, you know, they're, they're bright signs. So uh, there have been some shows that I didn't know about. Um, some people hinted at them, but they couldn't tell me. Um, but there have been more shows on Netflix and stuff about barbecue that are including more people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been uh, definitely much more representation in media um, about it, like print media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing is like, you know, uh, Rodney Scott, who's a whole hog uh, barbecue guy out of Charleston, South Carolina. He has a cookbook. Mind you, 
he is the first African-American barbecuer. So like an actual practitioner, not somebody who does that as a hobby or whatever, um, getting a cookbook deal Wow! in, in 25 years. So wow. think about all the cookbooks that have come out in the last 25 years. This, he's the first African-American to get one. And then there's another guy named Kevin Bloodsoe who's going to have a book coming out pretty soon as well. So there's some progress. Um, the other kind of note of progress I'll make is um, there's something called the American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame. Uh, a few years ago, I kind of I criticized them in the local newspaper, the Kansas City Star, because the Barbecue Hall of Fame was really non-diverse uh, out of its 27 inductees at that time they only had one african-american um and so uh, i called them out and to their credit they put me on the board and so um the last two classes have been more diverse we got some work to do uh so you know there's things like that are happening yeah so we'll see yeah well and and i will say that one of the things that gives me hope is that there are voices like yours that are continuing to uh gain steam and and that you're putting out great books that uh people are reading and appreciating uh it gives me hope that that and there are others who are doing a lot of work around telling black people's side of the story when it comes to food and, and food in this country. And I, that's one of the things that gives me a ton of hope. Um, so where can people find you? Go ahead and, and, and plug all of the things you want to plug. Um, <laughs> it, all, all, all the spaces, just just tell us all the ways to, to get in touch and connect with your work. I've tried to make it easy for everyone. So Soul Food Scholar, that's the operative term because I, I call myself the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Hopefully, <laughs> And uh, website is soulfoodscholar.com. And then on Facebook, it's the Soul Food Scholar fan page. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Soul Food Scholar. So those are the ways to find me. And the book, uh, Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue, I assume will be anywhere people get their books. Yeah. So it's on online platforms. You can order it directly from me and I'll send you an autographed copy. And I'm so appreciative of you ordering my book from me that I'll sign it any way you want. So if you want me to write, I couldn't have done it without you. I'm happy. <laughs> uh, available on Kindle, on online platforms. Uh, if your local bookstore, your local independent bookseller does not have it, uh, ask them to stock it and uh, public libraries as well. The only thing it's not, uh, it's not an audio form. Uh, at this point. And I think it's that mainly is because of liability issues. Um, the recording company uh, felt my voice was too sexy and that thought they might cause some accidents. Uh, <laughs> so, it, it kind of I, 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 and, and we will put a warning on the front end of the podcast as well, <laughs> for, that, for that reason. Um, <laughs> And, and I, I will also just say one of the things that I, I, I love about the soul food and this book is that you include recipes. And that feels to me like not just um, not just a, a good thing to do, but it invites people into the culture and it invites people into the food. Uh, and I appreciate so much that you do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this this has been an absolute joy. Adrian, thank you so much for making some time for us, um, for gracing this this podcast with your just very experienced and very knowledgeable voice. It really has been a joy. And uh, good Lord willing, look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. All right. Sounds good. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, 
the Garden Church and the Keep Intel. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.